Welcome to Book of Mormon History. We provide easy access to current research for personal study. And you can find us online at www.bookofmormonhistory.com. Today, we're going to be discussing the geology of the Book of Mormon with professional and licensed geologist Jerry Grover. Let's listen in to our conversation. Welcome to Book of Mormon History Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Gailey, and today we will be discussing the geology of the Book of Mormon through the eyes of a geologist. In order to talk about geology and the Book of Mormon, there is no one more qualified than the one who literally wrote the book titled Geology of the Book of Mormon. Let me introduce the one who will be rending the rocks with us today. Jerry Grover is a licensed professional civil engineer and licensed professional geologist. He speaks four languages with fluency in Italian and Chinese and has over 25 years of translation experience. He holds a Master of Engineering degree focused in civil engineering from the University of Utah and a Bachelor of Science degree in geological engineering from Brigham Young University. Born in the volcanic islands of Hawaii and having driven on a motorcycle in Taiwan during Typhoon Alex, Jerry was born to write on geology of the Book of Mormon. He pursues the sciences as a career and rigorous independent researcher. His research is self-funded and self-published through Book of Mormon scientific and linguistic research, and all publications are free to download at www.mormon.com. BMSLR.org. While he independently publishes, the publications represent high quality scholarship as meticulous, comprehensive, and scientific. Jerry Grover, welcome to the podcast. Uh, glad to be here, Josh. Could you introduce yourself to the audience and talk about your passion for the Book of Mormon? I'm a, like you said, licensed structural civil engineer and licensed geologist. I've always followed Book of Mormon research, I guess, uh, although I haven't really, didn't really publish anything till five years ago, but I did review like Dr. Sorensen's book back in the 80s, a draft of that he gave to me. So I've, I've had an interest in specifically Book of Mormon geography and the models and then all the other elements uh, that relate to that. Like I say, my background, I worked as an exploration geologist when I was young, mapping volcanic deposits and different things. I've also worked, you know, as a civil engineer and structural issues. So I kind of thought that those qualifications were sufficient for me to kind of make the effort of looking at the geology that may be represented in the text of the Book of Mormon. So I just decided to take it on. And I had noticed that there really hadn't been anybody that had applied the uh, specific geology, there were others that had published kind of general looks at the geology, meaning Dr. Qualis at BYU and Dr. Baer had published some articles about the likelihood that the third Nephi event was talking about a volcanic eruption, but they hadn't really specifically drilled down into the application of it in terms of on the ground. Uh, the other thing I was attempting to do was establish criteria, which Others could use if they had particular models, if they geographic models that they would need to apply to make sure those models were consistent with what was talked about in the Book of Mormon in terms of geology. 
The Book of Mormon is a religious history. It's a religious spiritual lineage history, which John Sorensen and Hugh Nibley and others certainly drew out in the early phases of Book of Mormon research. What limitations does that give you? You're basically taking an account of an event that's written from a religious perspective, from a historical perspective, with really an ethnocentric viewpoint of Nephite, and you're then trying to to pull out the pieces of what would be relevant in these events geologically. This is a broad question to say, is that even possible? And obviously you feel that answer is yes, but maybe you could dial in on that. Well, you know, the text itself obviously is religious, but it does re- it does contain certain description of certain types of things. Now, they may be couched in, you know, prophetic language or something. The attempt was is to say, okay, we ha- take this specific thing that's described. And I even used the prophecies, uh, you know, the visions, uh, counted them as like, okay, assume this is firsthand, that they're seeing something in the vision. I'm not saying it's, you know, chronologically in a certain order, but... I also accounted for all of those and tried to say, okay. And the other thing is, you know, it's an ancient text. And so it's an ancient people. They aren't describing it in terms, they aren't differentiating all of the, you know. They're they're not using your geologist words to deliver to you exactly what you're looking for, right? You have to draw that out from their 2,000 years ago account, right? So that's rare to have a firsthand account of this type of event, right? I mean, that just doesn't happen very often. My wife and I went to Pompeii. Everybody got buried. You know, actually, the eruption of Vesuvius, there are uh, records of that because there were ships and other things that witnessed it. I mean, Pliny was killed on the ship. He was overcome right. by gas. So so there are actually some recounts of, of volcanic eruptions anciently. Of course, the problem is you have to have a volcano in an area where there's uh, people that keep records, you know, central China is not a place for them. Most of Europe isn't a place for them. So there are some records and some recounting through history of volcanic eruptions by more ancient peoples. That That is actually helpful to look at those in the context that they're describing a whole event. They aren't differentiating all the time right. uh, be, between, you know, a specific feature of a volcanic eruption. They kind of just generally are trying to describe what happened. And of course, in the case of the Book of Mormon, it's pretty clear they had to gather. The recounting is not, you know, one person witnessing everything because they're talking about destruction of all these various cities and specific areas, land northward had more damage. So there's obviously been some, you know, accumulation of record keeping or accounts that are then reflected in the text. And no doubt there's a religious element. It's pretty clear that the description itself is attempting a little bit to match yeah. the prophecies. I mean, I'm not saying that the prophecies, you know, didn't happen as they occurred, but they are clearly part of the of the reason for putting all this in the Book of Mormon is to verify that yes, those prophecies took place or or, or were actually verified with the destruction. And so so you, you, you do have to kind of read it in that context, but still the specific you know discussion of dark Vapor darkness or people being overcome by vapors, tumultuous noises, all those things are specific things that probably reflect what ex- probably their exact observation. Right. And there would have been a, a cause for those things. 
Well, let's let's take a look at that. Let's look at the third Nephi account. And for those that may be a little unfamiliar with the account, at the crucifixion of Christ in the old world, in the Book of Mormon account of the promised land, at the death of Jesus Christ, there is a tremendous destruction and a judgment that takes place. And the land, the face of the land is said to have changed. And it includes a number of different items. I have a list of 10 things, and I'd like to go down it. It may not be all of the things that are completely recorded. Jerry has a book for that that we could go into for all the things. But I'd like to go down through these 10 in a slow motion firestorm here, one at a time, and allow Jerry to kind of respond to these as to how he reads these events that are recorded in the text and in the story, how he reads this account and comes to the conclusion of volcano, earthquake, and what that might mean. So bullet point one, we have a great storm, and that gets bracketed. It's a great storm such as never had been known before. And it kind of hits into point two, a great and terrible tempest. So, Jerry, as you read those descriptions, and if you want to dive in and if you hit others while we're going down, that's great. How do you read those things as you're taking this into account? Or maybe you you can't bracket them that way. Maybe you have to put everything together. Well, you 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 have to look at each of them and also where they took place and all that. The, The great storm, not to diverge away from the volcanic discussion too much, but I also looked at the potential of a hurricane, maybe you know, saying, okay, could have a hurricane been part of this great storm and looked at all the the records of hurricanes that have been kept since the 1800s. The timing was a problem because the Christ was crucified late late March, early April is, you know, there's different calculations of different people, but I, I didn't really get into doing a new calculation. I just used what was out there and you just don't have, you have hardly any hurricanes occurring before May, and it's a very rare event that you would have that. The other issue there is you had a the storm, great storm itself was said to last three hours. That would have to be a very fast-moving hurricane. To And again, we don't know exactly what hours means, but at least even if it was you know 12 hours in a day or something, you still have be a hurricane that would have to be very fast moving and they just don't tend to have that much energy associated with them. It's the slow moving ones that pick up all the, you know, they, they get it off the warm water that's that they're coming in off of, but they, they, if they're slower moving, they tend to have more power. So the, the hurricane didn't really fit for the great storm. So then, then you're looking at, okay. And that, that's one of the things that people do bring up. They say, well, how come they just didn't say a volcano? Why well, doesn't translate it as a volcano, you know, like a volcano. A couple of reasons potential, and I didn't really include that discussion in the book. The there are, there is some uh, in in the Bible itself. There is some Hebrew indication that great storm is a translation potentially for the Ezekiel dream, which some think possibly was a volcanic eruption because it talks about wheels of fire, basically ball lightning, things that kind of come off of volcanoes. That was talked about as a great storm. Even some of the translations of the basically the Exodus event, Mount Sinai, has some indication of great storm. The other thing uh, I looked at 
it, it is in the book, is that the one particular volcano that looked like was the best candidate had a, an eruption in 1793. And this volcano, there's a lot of rainfall, a lot of precipitation in this particular area. And so they described it because it was completely, the, the top of the volcano was completely um, encompassed in clouds. They described it as a huge thunderstorm. They actually, the, the people hmm. at that time thought it was a storm. So I thought that was interesting that um, that may be another reason why that they described it that way. And, and can can thunder and what's even referenced in the book, my, my point here, so I have terrible thunder as point three, and we have in my point five here exceedingly sharp lightning. Those things actually, our minds typically go storm. But if we're rephrasing the word storm and if we're looking at it differently, can a volcano create those outcomes? Yeah, the sharp lightning, there's a lot of lightning that occurs in the ash cloud simply because it generates a ton of static electricity. So you have lightning all over the place, kind of weird, just exceeding sharp lightning, meaning it's, it's actually not even going to the ground. It's just going between, you know, up in the cloud, the ash cloud, and kind of there's some spectacular pictures of those. Anybody can look those up on the internet. The thunder, of course, the eruption itself generates noise, the explosion. This particular volcano also, and I get into that later, it's probably maybe more apt as describing the tumultuous noises. It's a phreatomagmatic volcano, which means there's a lot of groundwater, there's a lot of moisture in the ground. And so when the volcano erupts, it has like a series of explosions because you're, you're also heating the the groundwater and generating explosion of superheated steam off of the flanks of the volcano, et cetera. In fact, in the 1793 eruption, the people, it was, they had a port of Veracruz. The men ran down to the port. They thought that there was pirates attacking the port <laughs> because of the, there was just a series of explosions over 24 hours. It sounded like cannon fire is what they thought. So, so this particular volcano is very noisy, but that can accommodate, you know, the terrible thunder and the tumultuous noises can both be caused by a volcano, particularly this this particular one, that I think is the best fit. And the great shaking and great quaking, of course, that that fits well with both the volcano and earthquake and aftershock activity. What about whirlwinds, strong enough to carry people away? It's easy for us to visualize a tornado just sweeping through. But is something like that, uh, obviously, there's tremendous force coming off a volcano, but it depends on where you are, whether or not that might sweep you away. Is this something that would be realistic in that scenario? Yeah, there's two elements of volcanoes that could generate that. Volcanoes actually generate rain and everything else, their own little weather system when they erupt <laughs> because they're affecting the atmosphere locally. Probably the more apt description that they're giving, the apt explanation of that description, excuse me, is pyroclastic flows that come out basically as, as huge gas, huge clouds of ash that have a travel at high velocity. And so you can get all kinds of whirlwind type events, either as part of the pyroclastic flow or following the flow can be described that way. Then after about three hours, the primary shaking, quaking of the earth ends, there's described as a thick vapor of darkness on the face of the land and the trembling actually in it continues 
and the groaning noises only stop, it says, after about three days, and then the darkness disperses. Volcanic activity and earthquake activity both fall in line again with these two descriptions, correct? The volcano obviously can create an ash cloud. Is that significant enough to not be able to light a fire? Yeah, there have been accounts, ancient accounts. And Dr. Qualis, I just referenced him, talked about those where they weren't able to light their fires because of the ash in the air. It kind of just snuffed out everything. One thing is, is also the tumultuous noises continued for the full three days. That, that's one of the things people commented on this as well. The earthquake doesn't take that long, but it's like it talked about quakings even for the three hours. It wasn't like a singular quake. And so when it talks about the dreadful groanings and the tumultuous noises and the earth trembling, those are all probably describing aftershocks and also the volcanic eruption maybe occurred during that same. It's pretty clear, at least it may not have, you know, the ash cloud kind of dispersed. So maybe it was only two and a half days and it was generating the ash, you know, and it took a little while for the ash to clear out. Those are, you know, indicative or consistent with both of those events volcanic eruption and a regional earthquake. The highways get broken up. There's a, a breaking up of cities, destruction, inhabitants are, are dying in this event. It's, it's extreme. The rocks get broken and ripped apart. I, you know, I've thought about, well, how would I describe if I didn't have a word for volcano, a mountain blowing up, the ground literally erupting. To me, that's the land changing, the face of the land changing. That That's just my own, you know, viewpoint on that. But we have three cities where waters come up and there's some form of a liquid burial. Is it flooding? Is it being, you know, is it sinking into the water? There's one specific city that kind of sinks, sloughs off into the sea. There's six cities that have fire-related destruction. They're a little different from each other. You've mentioned this and I caught this. I thought it was a good point. Zarahemla takes fire. Some of the other cities... It's described almost as fire coming down, so maybe I shouldn't group those together into six. Maybe that should be broken apart. One is covered by earth, and five sink into the earth. So there is a massive destructive level at 16 cities that are being described in Third Nephi. All of these things, whether it's a flooding or a sinking or a fire, how does a city sink into the earth during one of these events from your perspective as a geologist? The sinking can occur as just part of the fault movement. Some of the cities involving the water, it actually says the water came up. It didn't Comes say up. Sunk. Yeah, it didn't say they sunk into the water. Now, the, it does say for Moroni, it sunk into the sea, in the depths of the sea. And so you have essentially the deformation of the land that causes can cause sink you know changes in elevation from the earthquake you also have the secondary things that happen in soils that are susceptible to liquefaction certain types of soils in an earthquake event will move based on you know how much water they have in them and the type of soil and so you can have a sinking also from that effect that it's not really this it's not really the structure overall structure of the land related to the earthquake has changed, but a specific area that's susceptible to that effect can also have sinking. The city basically sits on jello for a few moments, right? And the earth loses its ability to 
sustain the weight. Am I yeah, saying that right? Much, yep. That's pretty much it. Those are the things I did try to look at specifically too, is that if it said it sunk, then you had to accommodate that again. And then the attempt was, okay, you have the, all these specific things. Well, you still have to lay it in you know, on the ground. Right. Right. And, and so you have to find a volcano that erupted during the correct time frame that was on or adjacent to uh, a fall, preferably a strike slip fall, then go from there and see whether the model and have most of the, the damage in the land northward. So you had to probably have the volcano in the land northward and at least a good section of the fall system into the land northward. You know, so that's kind of why you, you do this early analysis is uh, so that you can say, okay, all these parameters have to match on the ground. For the third Nephite event, what scale do you use based on the report, the ancient report that you have to try and categorize what would be a best fit of what occurred? What scale are you using and how do you apply it? I mean, volcanoes have a specific, they call them BEI, which is the explosive index. So there's ratings for volcanic eruptions. For earthquakes, of course, people are familiar with the Richter scale. There's a different scale called the moment scale. They're basically based off readings of shaking off that you're reading from instrumentation. But there is another scale when you're looking, when you're doing these hazard analyses, of a particular area, you may have a volcanic eruption that occurred like 200 years ago. So you don't have any data that's collected from instrumentation, but you do have reports of destruction and collapse of structures, that kind of thing. And so there was a scale developed called the Mercalli scale, where you rate the intensity of the shaking based on the destruction described. And it basically just uses Roman numerals, you know, 1 to 12 you know, one being the least and 12 being the most. And you can correlate that, generally speaking, to these other scales, roughly. So that that was what uh, I looked at, is to say, okay, what's really being described here in terms of the destruction? They had, you know, cities completely destroyed, buildings collapsed. And so looking at that, you'd have to say, at least on this Mercalli scale, the event was probably an eight and above that was a parameter. You say, okay, anything that I'm looking at, if I'm looking at a fault or, I mean, one of the questions was a lot of the earlier publications that indicate, hey, a volcano it could cause all of these things because volcanoes, there are earthquakes associated with volcanoes, but volcanic earthquakes are generally not that powerful and they don't propagate very far in terms of their shaking, you know, two to three miles uh, there's actually equations that have been developed that you can calculate that the distance away, what your intensity will be from a volcano based on actually monitoring volcanoes for many years. And so I, I utilized that because that was one of the questions that was had to be answered is, was it just a volcano? And the answer is no, it, a volcano cannot does not account for all of the destruction described. You've got to have a regional earthquake in conjunction basically simultaneous with your volcanic eruption. And so that that's another thing you have to look at in terms of applying, looking at whatever your model is, saying, okay, do we have a regional earthquake adjacent to or pretty close to a volcano? What's the type of volcano or volcanoes we need? What's the type of fault we need? 
Well, the volcano, um, you know, there are different kinds of volcanoes, but there are two principal ones. One's basically similar to Hawaii, where you would have not really ex- super explosive events, gas accumulating with explosions. They just kind of erupt. There's some explosive activity, but not that much. And then the lava just kind of runs out. But then the other one is a, an explosive volcano, kind of like Mount St. Helens, where you actually have a large amount of ash distributed over territory. You have very explosive. Basically, you're building up to an explosive event where, you know, half the side of the mountain came off, uh, that kind of thing. It's based on the underlying geology of subduction zones and spreading and all of that. So that in the, in the Book of Mormon, because you're talking about this mist of darkness spread over, you know, most all the land, it's pretty clear you're talking principally about an explosive volcano that generates ash and hot pyroclastic flows, that kind of thing. As far as the earthquake, you know, you do have faults that go up and down, but there's what's called a strike-slip fault, which is basically horizontal movement. The description in the Book of Mormon seems to fit better with the strike-slip because it generates a lot of cracking and surface features. The others do have surface features and cracks as well, but the strike-slip fault would seem to be the one that best fits the description given in the Book of Mormon. Can a strike-slip fault and a volcano both go off at the same time? Yeah, there's actually studies of that, and there's occurrences that have occurred in Chile and others. And um, so it's not the most common event, but it does occur. Principally, the reason is, is if the volcano is close or on the fault, probably the earthquake would, if there's been pressure building up, could be the, the cause of the volcanic you know, release of the of the pressure that's built up in the magma chambers or whatever. And so, yeah, they, they do occur and they occur under certain situations. That seems to be what has happened in the book. That's what the Book of Mormon, third Nephi event, is describing. You have to have both in order to accommodate for all the damage and all the description of specific, you know, features of the, you know, whirlwinds and basically fire coming down from the sky kind of thing. The attempt was to take the events described and break them into all their specific hazards and destructive elements and account for all of those, you know, looking at the source or cause of those specific damage or destruction or death. So some of these other models, you know, haven't published anything, but the reality is there are some deficiencies in attempting to take explain something without a volcano, because you, you, you've got to be careful. You can't just cherry pick the Book of Mormon. You have exactly. to account exactly. for all everything. And that's what this book attempts to do is say, listen, I'm looking at every possible thing in terms of length of the what was happening, length of time, you know, the destruction itself, the cities that were destroyed, all those types of things. So that was the basic, you know, it was taking kind of this general discussion that there was something happened at Third Nephi that involved geology earthquake, et cetera, and say, okay, let's break that down into the specifics. And then the second was, okay, I've got all the specifics. Well, we have to actually apply this on the ground. I mean, the Book of Mormon took place somewhere. And so you have to apply it on the ground. Others have developed like these generic maps of the Book of Mormon, just kind of like computer things saying there's this much distance between such and such cities, and those are helpful for like generic scripture study, but they don't really get you very far in terms of 
applying it on the ground because you really do have to lay it on the ground to make everything fit on the ground. That's the hard part. And that's always where the, a lot of these geographic models fall apart. They're great in somebody's mind, but they don't yeah. do always that well when you actually have to say, okay, where does it actually take place? Where's and, the actual volcano? Where's the actual fault line right. you know, versus where the actual cities are that are supposed to be destroyed in this event? How do you do that? What made you pick John Sorensen's model as the starting point? And then let's go there. Let's look at some of how this fits into a real place. We've identified a real type of volcano that has to be there. We've identified a real type of fault line that has to be there. And it has to be generally in the land northward, possibly going down into the narrow neck, according to the descriptions. Let's do it. Let's try and fit it into a place. Uh, Take me there, Jerry. Let's go. Well, I use the Sorensen model, at least, you know, I go through all this early analysis and then I say, okay, well, I actually talk about the Sorensen model in the beginning, but right. uh, number one, his is, you know, a lot of these models are just some people's scribbles on the back of a napkin. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, his, his is actually developed with sophisticated maps and identifies location of cities. You know, a lot of the, the third Nephi event cities are only mentioned during third Nephi, so they are extremely useful. Uh, to verify the model, there are some like Bountiful, which wasn't destroyed, or at least adjacent to an area that was destroyed, but it itself wasn't destroyed based on the description. And so there are some cities where we do have, they do show up in these models, and the Sorensen has specific locations for those cities. So that. And where is that? that? Uh, it's basically the narrow neck is the isthmus of Tehuantepec, and basically the river Sidon is the river Grijalva. Basically, you're looking at Highland, Guatemala, Land of Nephi, Highland, Chiapas, your Zarahemla area. So, so his his was a model that I used initially. Other models could, I mean, they have, people have to understand this took like two years of research. <laughs> so, right, I've right. had people call, "Hey, just apply it to my model." I'm like, "Well, I don't have another two years to look <laughs> up all the geology where your particular model is." And, so, and and you're happy with what you've found if the research is driving the Mesoamerican model in such a way that it creates a hypothesis that can be tested and overlaid with different academic categories, geology being one of them, and they continue to fit and the model continues to build on itself, then isn't that where we should look first? Yeah. And some things were, I didn't really have to look at all the models in Mesoamerica. I mean, there's really not all that many. But certain things like, you know, some people have the land northward is the Yucatan Peninsula. Well, unfortunately, that's like super stable geologically. There's really no fault, no earthquake activity at all or no regional faults. So some things you don't really have to, you know, write a 300 page book about. You could right. say that just doesn't meet even the first <laughs> criteria. And so, yeah, and so it was, it's hoping that they can just look at this and say, okay, if I want to try to use it, I've got to have certain things. And if, you know, and I, I do point out some people say, well, you're using science and all this type of thing. And, you know, if God wanted an earthquake there. He could just make it fault and make it happen. You know, you have to kind of come from the premise that these, this was an event that had some basis in, in some natural phenomenon, right? That was, I agree. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, that's kind of also a premise that I go off of. And, and, you know, it, it basically it says that. These things were caused. That's the term that's used in the Book of Mormon. And so it's not, it's not eliminating any divine element. It's just saying, uh, these, these, if you can, if you use that 
uh, approach it from a scientific standpoint, you can actually show that, yes, that, that it, it does fit in a particular area and it, it matches, you know, a geographic area. And so maybe that's the place that you need to start looking for more the rest of your model. And, and you're not trying to answer the question theologically of why. You're trying to, as a researcher and geologist, answer the question of where and how, right? So if, if we're able to just kind of separate those for a moment, it, it doesn't take the Lord's hand away from the judgment. He's obviously speaking in red letters in Third Nephi when he starts describing some of the cities, but it provides the mechanism that might have been used for that event. And it, it seems like a, a logical place to go, especially if we care about where and when and how the Book of Mormon took place. Yeah, and I, like I said, I've, I've kind of told people all of my books, nobody really cries when they read them. Um, <laughs> they're, they're not really, you know, they're not full of faith-promoting stories. It's just very a, kind of an impassionate look. Um, my whole approach in, in any of the books I write is I'm mostly looking at the text of the Book of Mormon. That's the primary source of what I use for any of my books. And so that I'm, I'm a scientist, so I don't, I can't assume that these people knew anything or didn't know, you know, unless they specifically had a vision and saw something, which the Book of Mormon talks about, you know, people, Zenos and Sabbath the Lamanite seeing certain things that were going to happen. I, you know, utilize them. That's actually really refreshing to me because I'd much rather zero in on the text. So I appreciate the, the direction you took. And it, for me, was allowed me to dive into Third Nephi, and that's where I wanted to be. So it, it was terrific from from my perspective there. You you've described Mesoamerica as a geologist's dream and a geologist's nightmare, and since that's the model we're looking at of where this event likely occurred, could you describe the landscape a little bit from a geolo- geologist's point of view? And then let's talk about volcanoes and fault lines. Let's go there. It, does it fit? And if so, how? Well, the, the reason it's a geologist's dream is because it's got all kinds of things. It's got subduction zone. It's got strikes that faults. It's got volcanoes, all the cool stuff, right? And so, yeah, that's – but it's a nightmare because it's actually pretty complex. The plate subduction, there's a couple plate, or it's going under a couple plates, you know, one plate going on a couple plates, one plate's rotating against another plate. And there's a lot of volcanoes. So yeah. From, from my standpoint, it was like, uh, unfortunately, I got to look through all of them. You looked at all of them. You looked at all of them. And were they active at the right time at the death? of? I mean, you looked at this, said, let me first filter out what's what's not active at the right time. And then let me zero in on what is active. And did they actually possibly explode at the right time? Tell me about it. That That seems like two years seems like not enough. I mean, that seems like a ton of work. Yeah, it was. And, and I, you know, <laughs> I didn't include all the ones that I ruled out. I mean, I did. I had to yeah. research on every volcano. If it didn't work, I didn't include it in the book. <laughs> but, right. And, and so, I mean, that would have been, you know, 500 pages more or something. So so I basically just said, listen, I looked through all of them. Some didn't have a lot of great data, you know, because some haven't really had the flows sampled with radiometric dating or even superposition and different ways of determining when an eruption occurred, but for the most part, yeah, that's what I did. And I had to also look at timing as well as the type of, of eruption. Because some of them 
there are some just more like your Hawaii type uh, lava areas in Mesoamerica too. But so yeah, and then then also you had to look at the history of the earthquakes on each of the you know I went through uh, the, each of the fault systems and determined you know the recent earthquake events and the power of them, the strengths that kind of thing. So. So yeah, and that that did take some time, and that's why you, in the book I talk about the candidates that could, you know, survive that screening of the volcanoes, and, and which one probably seems to be the one best fit. And also I looked at you know the location because if it's clear up in the very you know northern extremity of the land northward, would you expect to have your darkness? go clear because it talked about the land southward it also had darkness so uh, would you expect that your ash cloud would could travel uniformly that far i mean again it's based on local meteorological conditions but so so that's another thing you have to look at is if you get too far south or too far north with your volcano and then you have an issue and i didn't rule out multiple volcanic eruptions they they you know you do have that occurred in kamchatka Russia, so you could have had a couple volcanoes erupting, but I kind of just tended to go to the simplest. You know, do does that need it to to describe the third Nephi events? And it's not. You could just have one volcano. And so, which which volcano did you you know do you feel is the best fit? Yeah, it was the San Martin volcano that's part of the Tuxla volcano complex south of Veracruz looked to be fit that it's in the land northward it had like i say it the the type of eruptions it has also matches the description the best and it's centrally located i mean it's it's not clear uh, up to the very north end of the land northward and so you basically seem to fit the geographical location and it it sits right on the veracruz regional fault system in fact, the very structure of the volcano is related to the fault. It comes up through the fault system. So that was another, if you're looking at a, a simultaneous eruption versus an earthquake, then that was also the best fit. Can I say 100%? Well, no, but it's probably like 90, 90%, 95%. And I think other books I've written since, looking at land northward geography, et cetera, that, that does bear out that that was probably where it was. Because you also had to have cities around it within a certain distance because it talks about fire sent down, you know, the city's burning up. So you can't just have a volcano that's sitting in an area where there's not any population really around it. Right. So that, that right. was the other thing is a San Martin volcano. In fact, there's been a stele that was covered and Tres Apotes periodically has covered cities that are adjacent to it. So the research then, Jerry, basically drove you to say, well, this is the most likely volcano. It is active. And then through the research, that has steered you to then make some interesting conclusions on both where John Sorensen said proposed certain cities were likely to be, and then even allowed you to take the map a little bit further, because based on the destruction, they have to be within a certain area. So Tell us a little bit about that, of, of where this has taken you in the next steps. Yeah, that, that's uh, I go through a section where I say, okay, now that I've identified likely volcano and the regional fault system, what does that tell us about the city's locations? Now, like I say, some 
We just don't have any other reference to that particular city anywhere else in the Book of Mormon. And so I could only say, well, like the ones where it said fire sent down, I basically said you're looking at a certain distance from the volcano for that to have occurred. So those cities would have to be within a certain distance from the volcano. And then they probably were, volcanoes don't really erupt out of all sides of the volcano. I mean, they can, but generally speaking, it's directional. Like Mount St. Helens had one side collapse. So probably those cities were on one side of the volcano, but I don't really get into too much detail. I mean, one side of those San Martin volcano is kind of the ocean, so you wouldn't expect them to be out there. And so I, I looked at that, and then the, the other cities, some of them I couldn't say, okay, they were not mentioned. I couldn't say specifically. I just said they're in they're within such a distance of the fault. There's basically what's called attenuation calculations that are done on earthquake faults where you can project the damage away with a, an equation a certain distance away from the fault because your energy dissipates as you get further from the earthquake event, right? So at some point, you don't have the power of destruction to de- destroy a city. So if that city was destroyed, it had to be in such a distance from the fault system. And so I was able to say, okay, I don't know exactly where that city is geographically, but I know it's at least within this zone of the fault, yeah. or, you know. Right. Then, right. then the specific cities that, that we do have more information on, like Moroni, well, that's one that's sunk into the sea, Bountiful, Zarahemla, those are mentioned. Sorensen has those in his model. And so then I could lay those in and compare, did they fit? Like Bountiful, for example, it wasn't destroyed. So you'd have to say, well, what was it? What it was? But, but it talks about the people looking from Bountiful and seeing elements of the destruction. I mean, it was later. It was later on that year. It's the end of the year that that happened. And so, yeah, I did look at that. And there were, where Sorensen had it. He had Bountiful. It was basically sitting on kind of a bedrock type of formation where across the river, it was this liquefaction material where you could have had destruction there and this and Bountiful itself didn't receive the destruction. So, so I looked at, you know, his cities and determined whether they fit that model and they fit pretty well. And so just to highlight on that, so this I thought was really interesting. You wrote on Bountiful, John Sorensen had a proposal in Mesoamerica of where it was likely to be and you would think, looking at the model of destructive events, that it might be in line for it to go through what you're calling that liquefaction, that that jello feature of a city possibly sinking in. But when you looked at where the proposal was for it to be, there was something much different underneath. It was basically a bedrock underneath, so it wouldn't sink. Am I am I hearing you correctly on that? Am I understanding it? So the Proposal fit, not only did it fit really well, but it, it fit in a geological way that makes sense. Yeah, I actually had, I mean, there wasn't any great maps of liquefaction potential. I actually had to generate my own, you know, create my own map of the soil types. And I, you know, I use certain extrapolations based on the geologic maps. But yeah, that would be, and you know, and that's something people would have to look at. If they're looking at their location of Bountiful, they'd have to have some ability to describe why why Bountiful wasn't destroyed and but the adjacent area they could see destruction and so Soren, you know Soren's a particular location actually the geological situation there matched you know that criteria so that was the 
again, the Sorensen, applying the Sorensen model was basically an example for people to say, okay, you have all these geological things, lay the model down, see if they work at the specific level of like where a city is located. And right. yeah, maybe, you know, maybe, well, that's wrong means that, well, maybe you need to look for another location for that city, which has caused people some grief and they've loved my book, but ignored parts of it because they didn't like it. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Don't find where I put city X, right? And, that, and that's a problem with a lot of these models is everybody has their, like their little pet. Yeah. Um, and I don't care. I mean, when I write the book and everything, I don't, you know, I'm trying to be dispassionate and just present the data and what the, you know, what it says. But that's unfortunately people just, certain people just, well, I, yeah, I like that's great. The volcano described, but I don't like what you said there because <laughs> it doesn't, my model doesn't fit that. And I'm like, yeah. well, if you yeah. can figure out some other explanation, that's great. Here's what the saying, data tells saying, me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. not saying, hey, you can make an argument, you know, which, you know, some people have it in the Baja California Peninsula, and there's no volcanoes there. I mean, during the erupted, I mean, they're they're. I think the most recent is like ten thousand years ago or so. So that's all old volcanic uh, activity. But then they say, well, it could be fog, you know, that's generated this quiescent fog. It's a hurricane, and and again, it's kind of like, well, okay, when do you have a hurricane come through, and then all of a sudden you have no wind and anything? It's just a fog. Just yeah. that's not that's not a no for three straight event. days. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and you know, people were were dying from the vapor. So what kind of fog are we talking about? You know, it starts to fall apart when you actually have to apply it on in a specific event. And like I say, a lot of things can just they say, well, there's a fault system here, but you have to still look at, yes, that's the first criteria. There has to be earthquakes, but where do your cities fit in relation to the earthquake? Are they, they've got to be a certain distance off of that particular fault system. And so that, that's, that's why, unfortunately, just a lot of the, the discussion of models, <laughs> they just kind of do this general thing. And then, you know, some of them claim revelation. I don't know, you know, for me, it's just what what does the Book of Mormon actually say? What does, the sci- what does the science say? And then just apply it. And you can't just start picking and choosing. You can't cherry pick what you think you want. And a model that gets tested should be refined over time as experts go in and bring their area of precision over the model. We should be able to tweak and shift a little bit but also support the overall general conclusions that we're making if it is a real testable, workable model. And, you know, these the models are, have to be more rigorous than just the geology. That's just one element. Yeah, yep, all exactly. The others, all the other things associated with the description of the Book of Mormon. So I, that's, that's what I'm saying is you, you've got to accommodate pretty much everything. Of course, the text has some ability to be interpreted different ways. Um, Directional systems are still an issue that, I mean, I think I've resolved um, looking in other books, but that there are different systems that can be used. So, and then the other thing is there are a couple other geological events, if you want to get into that. Yeah, let's go. In, in the Book of Mormon that also Let, have to be accommodated in, with specific cities. Let's go to Helaman chapter 5, the destruction that takes place while... Lehi and Nephi are doing missionary work. They go from the land of the Nephites. They go up south to the land of Nephi. Eventually, they're converting some Lamanites along the way, and they eventually reach the land of Nephi. They get thrown in prison. 
there's an event that gets described and it there's some elements here that mirror third nephi not on the scale necessarily but there is a darkness there is shaking could you talk about that story for a little bit and then let's let's talk about Keminohuyu John Sorensen's proposed site for the city of Nephi and see if it fits the model yeah you know not I'm not going to read the scriptures but if you just break it down uh, first, there's an earthquake, then there's an overshadowing cloud of darkness appear. There's a second earthquake, then a third earthquake, then the cloud of darkness dissipated. You also have a description, which you can then use the Mercalli scale on using the prison, because it talks about the walls trembling, but it wasn't sufficient. The earthquakes didn't cause them to collapse, even though the witnesses thought they were, it was close, right? They said that they thought they were, thought they were going to tumble to the earth, so... That gives you some criteria to use for your Mercalli scale. This looks to be more typical of a, something that's more adjacent to a volcano, because you did have a volcanic eruption at the cloud of darkness. The earthquake, if it's close enough, could just be the volcano itself, the earthquakes, the shaking caused from volcanic earthquakes. So, yeah, and when I looked at that, there, and this would be a, maybe a more minor volcanic event, because, you know, it didn't. If it's adjacent to the volcano, it didn't, the pyroclastic flow didn't come out and cover up the prison, right? So, right, so, right. So it may, you know, that was part of the problem is it may not be reflected in the geologic record in the terms of, you know, a major eruption where you've actually got people have studied it and, and done radiometric dating on it. So I recognize, well, it needs to be a volcano that's active during that time frame, but I said, you know, maybe you're not going to see the, the specific volcanic event there because it wasn't really much. It was just a little bit. But yeah, and so then I just used, the, there's actually this equation that's been developed by Zobin as to calculating the distance away from the volcano based on the Mercalli, the Mercalli scale of damage. I just took that and used the Pacaya volcano, which is south of Guatemala City. That's basically where, you know, the land of Nephi is. And basically it fit that when you back calculate um, using that, strength of earthquake back to the volcano it showed that the distance was probably consistent with what Sorensen had because the prison it wasn't necessarily right in the, the city it was outside so to, right earlier right. it's a, it's the same prison that or was used when Ammon came much earlier it references that in the book of Mormon so uh, and then had to be transported from there to the king so but it, it fit within, you know, those parameters. So you would say, again, this event where he has that particular prison or city is consistent with the underlying geology. So you'd say, okay, whoever has a model of this sort has to accommodate that event with that particular city. And, and then the other event, if you want to go to that, the Ammoniah. Yeah, yeah, let's go there. Um, that's another city. Where, again, another prison event where you, in that situation, the prison collapsed. There was a great sound that followed it. And so you have to then look and say, okay, is Ammoniah in an area where an earthquake could cause a collapse of that, that prison? Um, the, I also went into the great sound. It sounded peculiar the way that they described it. And there are certain earthquakes that can create what's called their super shear earthquakes and can create a sonic boom. They typically occur in certain, you know, you know long strikes at faults and with underlying uh, 
uh, granite or granitic rock. And where Sorensen had it, it matched. There was underlying metagranite. It was located fairly close to a strike slip fault. So that's another city that you have to, wherever you place it in your model, has to uh, meet the geologic criteria. So, you know, those, those are two other events that help refine if you've got a model. Make sure that you're correct in placing them in those locations. And quite frankly, you know, a lot of the models don't even have that specificity of the city. So <laughs> they haven't even right. to that level. Right. And that's the thing. Sorensen's model, there are a couple others that have that specificity, but there are very few that actually lay out cities and locations with that specificity. So if somebody wants to research a, a working model for Book of Mormon events, these stories like you know, M and I, ha, when we start talking about the city of Nephi, the land of Nephi, and we start laying in third Nephi, if they want to start looking at a model, that's a good place to start that in your opinion fits the parameters. Would you recommend like Mormon's Codex by John Sorensen or some other books for them to get an intro into the model? And then obviously your work of geology of the Book of Mormon is a, a next place to go. And maybe some of your other works that you have published that I'm trying to catch up on and read through and, and digest on going further into the model. But is that the starting point? Is somebody that really cares about where the Book of Mormon takes place and is interested in the Mesoamerican model you've discussed today, what would you recommend for them? Well, there's variety. I mean, Mormon's Codex, some people don't like certain chapters of it. I don't. I find it actually pretty thorough. So if you're wanting Sorensen's take, then that, his other, his earlier book also has some maps and things that that his Mormon's Codex doesn't quite have. So maybe you would read Mormon's Codex and then maybe get his earlier 80, 1985 book. That would be if you're looking for the Sorensen model. Richard Hauk has his model. I don't know. He's got a book out of, uh, I'm not sure whether it's commercially available. I've just seen it at different conferences. Right, right. Uh, yeah. there's, all, there's also, there's a Mesoamerican model that basically, I mean, almost all of them have the land northward where Sorensen has it. It just starts to deviate when you get into the land southward. And, and you're kind of jumping into, you know, Richard Hauk has his. Then there's basically the Grijalva, which is mostly the Sorensen followed model as the riverside. And then the other one is the Usumacinta River, which is a little further to the northeast. Some believe that's the river Sidon. You don't have, I mean, there's some people who have the Panama model and different things, but but you know, most of those just can't provide any description of the Jaredite civilization when you do right, that. Right, and that, right. And that that's also a time. I mean, the Olmec's correlation with the Jaredites is really the only one in Mesoamerica that actually works in the time frame they're talking about. Any other comments on geology and the Book of Mormon that you'd like to share with us today? You mentioned ether just earlier on. I did address couple events that look like they might be indicative of volcanic eruption the snake event which where you had a, a general dearth and the snakes that migrated i actually did a little bit probably got out of geology into biology a little bit <laughs> right there on but, the type of viper right i mean the type of snake yeah yeah but you know that's just me i do research i don't always i kind of just go where things go and and research where they go. And if it's related, I included it because I actually did done research on that. And thought, well, that I, I discussed that the volcanoes can destroy 
eruptions destroy bird populations, which then could theoretically that could be part of the cause of the number of snakes. Not there's no predatory control, and plus of volcanic eruptions change, especially if it was where I thought it was, could cause migration, especially of water snakes that are dependent on water, that kind of thing. So I, I get into that a little bit. It was related to the geology. Just as just as I got into the great storm, the basically the meteorology of that. Right. It's not really geology, but it's something you had to look at in order to really fully exhaust all the possibilities of the geology. I have one last question. This is very important. Can you explain your passion for remodeling and selling vintage Fiat cars? I don't know. I served a mission in Italy, so and my father taught auto mechanics at BYU for 30 years, which meant we never, which meant we never owned a new car, right? So <laughs> we, we were just always working on cars. Yeah, and he had he had 15 kids, so he had a fleet of cars. Oh wow! <laughs> Holy cow! So, yeah, so that's 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 kind of basically why why it's become a little bit of a passion. Yeah, I haven't done it for some time for four or five years just because of, so I've gotten older, you know, lifting engines and stuff like that is a little more difficult. And honestly, it just takes time. And I've kind of spent a lot more time doing more additional Book of Mormon books. I mean, I've got a whole series as you, if you go to the website and I get into linguistics and other things. That's why the website's BMSLR. It's basically science and linguistic research. And I've sponsored some research, too, like Brian Stubbs did a, a linguistic book. on Groundbreaking uh, work. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And so he needed help in getting, you know, so I, I got him a research assistant so he could finish up his work and, and publish that. So I do, mm-hmm. I am involved, and I've donated to the original text. Royal Skousen's work is super important, too. I actually used it in this book, going to the original text. It didn't make a huge difference, but there were some elements that, you know, the rocks rending and things. The description was a little different in the original text or at least the printer's manuscript. And so, you know, I do, I do, when I do my research, I don't, you know, it's a lot of a mistake a lot of people make is, is they really do need to start looking at the original text of the Book of Mormon. And because that can, you know, you've got to be, be thorough. Again, you've got to make sure that you're looking at what was actually said. Absolutely. Well, if anybody is interested in some of your other works, you have publications on an analysis on the metal ziff, for example, and you evaluate descriptions of the plates and weights. You actually cross-reference that with Tumbaga, a metal in Mesoamerica, to show how the weight and description, even down to the percentage of which metal might get combined for the plates to be functional and realistic in a Mesoamerican setting, incredible, worth the read. You have detailed. Yeah. And that one explains the, you know, most people it's again, the devil's in the details, I guess, (laughs) but, but, you know, you had the, the, the engravings were black, you know, described as black having a stain. So you have to just, okay, what, what, what was that? Why was that there? You know, that's the nature of my research. I don't just go to the generic blurb stuff. I actually look at all, you have to look at everything and say, okay, what, is happening that book and the, the books are all free anyone can download them my research i don't sell it i mean i do produce a number of books that i gen, i donate to libraries and then if people want a hard copy I don't, the geology i don't have any more of those but then i'll sell it to them at cost you know, basically because some people you know aren't able to 
you know, some of them aren't quite as computer literate, don't like to download and read off the internet. But all my books can be freely downloaded in PDF format. So I don't do the research for money at all. It costs me money. It is all just fascinating to me. So I've looked at, uh, you know, I just printed out Swords of Shul as you and I were talking back and forth and emailing and kind of prepping for today. And I've been reading through that and enjoying it. There are multiple others. And for those that are interested in in Brian Stubbs' work, it, it is terrific linguistic analysis. Please go to that bmslr.org and take a look at the research and what's there. Explore and read the Book of Mormon as you're exploring and enjoy the journey. Because from geology to archaeology to linguistics to a myriad of other studies, it's worth the exploration and it gets richer and deeper and further. the further you go, for me at least, the better it gets. And the well has never run dry for me yet in studying the Book of Mormon. And the more that gets published, the more I'm enjoying the journey. So, just a, just I, a word, just a word of warning. One of those books is like almost 800 pages. So. <laughs> I'm feeling <laughs> when, you, when, you say the well, when we say the well's very deep, that one's pretty deep. That one's pretty deep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 Sumer, it's Sumerian etymology of Jaredite names, so it's a. You know, if you have insomnia, it's a good one. But, uh, <laughs> there we go. And I've got yeah, another one coming. I've got another one coming out in, I don't know, a few months. So, What's that one going to be? Uh, it's an update of the translation of the characters document. That one has seemed to generate a lot of interest in, on the Internet. Basically, it's the, the people called it the Anton transcript. That's not really what it was. It's a little strip of paper that is owned by the. Community Church of Christ. That, anyway, I, I found plenty of Egyptian in it numbers, uh, which I wasn't the first to find to determine that. And, and there's actually the Mesoamerican number nine in there, so that's another indication that probably Mesoamerica is the best place to look for uh, Book of Mormon geography. But so awesome. it's, it's, it's basically an update of that, looking at, at uh, kind of going to depth at the number system. I gave a presentation on the original book. It's on the it's on YouTube somewhere. So, well, I think I, I've actually watched that video. I've you have actually a presentation that Book of Mormon Central for their Book of Mormon Lands conference. I think Fair and Book of Mormon Central have both posted those on YouTube and can be watched. So, for somebody that's interested in in looking at what we've talked about today, or about the characters document in more detail, that's out there. Jerry, I would love one day to have you back on this thing, but I, I so value your expertise. I value taking your skills and applying it the way that you are. And I just thank you so much for your time and for what you are bringing to scholarship and research on the Book of Mormon. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, it's been fun. That's a wrap for today's podcast. I'd like to thank Jerry Grover for blowing up our understanding of the geology in the Book of Mormon. For more information, you can visit us online at www.bookofmormonhistory.com. And please like or subscribe us wherever you tune in. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.